Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Kettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 15 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, May the 12th. First, I'll be talking to Glenn Cross, the chair of EZZ Life, an ASX-listed company that researches and develops a broad range of products to enhance health and wellness. And I'll be talking to EY economist Sherelle Murphy about the budget. But now, let's talk to Glenn Cross. Glenn, tell us about the work that EZZ is doing. Yeah, well, we're a, we've been around a number of years and we listed on the ASX in March 2021. Our core business up until now, we produce consumer health products and we're the exclusive distributor for a range of skincare products called um, Aerion. And we distribute those to pharmacies, supermarkets and retailers in Australia and New Zealand. And we also have a, a e-commerce business in China distributing both the consumer health products and the and the skincare products as well. But the exciting thing and the reason I've come on board, Leon, is we've, we're called EZZ Life Sciences and we're now about to pivot into a, a, a truer life science company by entering the field of genomics. My, my background, my whole working life in um, life sciences, so I knew a number of the senior people in EZZ for a number of years. And when they came to me six or eight months ago and said, what we'd like to do is look at pivoting our business into this uh, newer specialised area of genomics. I, I became interested and then subsequently agreed to come on uh, board as the uh, non-executive director and chair. So genomics covers what areas? Well, genomics is about your DNA. And we first sequenced the human DNA a number of years ago, and it cost um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And progressively over the years, we've, uh, we have new equipment, new processes where we can actually go in and look at your person. Everyone's DNA is different. And genomics is just really about the business of looking at uh, someone's DNA and identifying, in many areas, identifying if there's problems with a genetic code that may cause serious uh, disease or serious birth defects, etc. But the, the area we're looking at, Leon, uh, in genomics is about personalising treatment. And we've known for some time that Three people may have, say they may have lung cancer, 
and they're treated with the gold standard drug at the moment. Uh, and out of those three people, only one people may respond, one person may respond to it. So it's based on your own personal DNA, whether you actually do respond to specific treatment regimes. So it's becoming, it's a really growing sector of healthcare. And quite frankly, sometime in the future, all of us will have genomic testing and we'll be taking um, personalised treatment as part, part of our standard healthcare toolbox, if you like. I believe you're focusing in uh, key areas like uh, genetic longevity, human papillomavirus, helicobacter pylori and weight management. Is that right? Yeah. The two broad areas, are, are, are longevity is around just uh, not just, but it's around uh, well-being and better health in general. Weight management is obviously very specific. And the two disease areas, um, HPV is human papillomavirus, which causes uterine cancer in women, but it also causes um, real problems uh, in males as well. And Helicobacter pylori is the bacterium that causes severe gut disease. We've identified those two specific areas for, for a number of reasons. For example, uh, in our China business, a large portion of the Chinese population actually have Helicobacter pylori and HPV is quite prevalent uh, in general across um, you know, Western society. So we're going to focus on those two areas in terms of our diagnostic genomic testing and the products that we will roll out progressively to that will be a, a treatment aid for those, for those diseases. Bearing in mind, we're very conscious that people should really only um, take these treatments if there is a chance that they are actually going to benefit them. And this is... This is good for society in general, just the healthcare costs in general in um, our Western societies. Genomic testing is going to lower the cost of, of treatment significantly as we, as we move forward over the, you know, the next decade. So what's the process involved in doing research? I mean, you would have a massive team of research and development people. Uh, we're, we're partnering for, for our specific research programs, uh, Leon. There was already, already some work going on by the EZZ executives before I came on board. And I, as I said, I, I was briefed on some of these specifics. We, we can't go into a lot of the detail yet because of um, you know, our listing rules and the fact that uh, things that might be significant in the market, we have to be uh, conscious of uh, our announcements. But the, the team has been working for some time talking to specific uh, research groups on the areas that we're interested in. We've also been talking to potential partners for the diagnostic testing. And we've also been talking to potential healthcare partners, both medical uh, people and um, uh, potentially uh, hospitals as well. So it's quite a broad ranging discussion. Right. Okay. So you, so it's a, it's a very much a collaborative approach to research. Yeah, it will be. Yeah. We, we wouldn't do all of this by ourselves. Um, our focus will be more on uh, the products that we believe may um, may be used in the treatment regimes, but in terms of the core products, uh, a lot of this research is uh, already going on uh, in Australia, and uh, yeah, we've already identified some partners that we're working with currently. Uh, so, where would you, your major markets be? Australia and New Zealand um, is our core market for all of our products, and that will continue to be our major market focus. But our growing uh, business uh, in China, our e-commerce uh, business for our health supplements and our beauty products, offers us an opportunity to uh, market these products, which are both 
uh, both HPV and HP uh, are significant issues in the uh, Chinese population and we'll be able to use our existing uh, e-commerce distribution chains to market those products uh, into China. Are you planning to expand e-commerce into Australia and New Zealand? Uh, not at this stage. We've got uh, a fairly extensive distribution network through you know, pharmacies, supermarkets and, and you know, beauty Beauty, part, you know, beauty stores, etc. So we will use those channels and expand those channels, but we may well look at uh, at some sort of e-commerce for some of the newer products as well. Okay. So, uh, so there's lots of prospects. In yeah, it's very exciting. Um, as you would have seen from our uh, results, where uh, we're profitable, we've proven to the market that we can execute uh, on our plans in our core products. We have no debt. We have cash, we have a really strong balance sheet and a future org as well, yes. Right, okay, okay. Well, well Glenn, thank you very much for your time. It's been- That's a pleasure. And now let's talk to EY economist Sherelle Murphy. Sherelle, the budget had $50 billion of uh, cost-saving measures. We're back in surplus, albeit briefly. Uh, what's, what's your analysis of it? Yes, we are back in surplus um, for the 22-23 year, at least that's the prediction, a small one. The, I think, look, really welcome. You know, there's been an enormous uh, surge in revenue, which has come through from the stronger economy. So particularly companies paying about $29 billion more than we thought even just back in October. Also, personal income tax receipts are up about $15 billion compared to back in October. These are enormous uh, increases in a short period of time. And they're, of course, just predictions at this stage. They're not locked in. And that is really a reflection of the fact that post-COVID, our economy was surging. Um, it was really doing very well. It was creating more jobs. People were getting paid more. Obviously, we had a, a new uh, influx of migrants. Um, our commodity prices remained very high, and we therefore were effectively pulling in more tax revenue. It, it sort of softens off from there, and that's why we go back into deficits over the coming four years. And that's reflecting the fact that the economy does slow and really highlights, I guess, the fact that what we've experienced in the last sort of 12 to 18 months is a bit unusual. You know, it's, it's a really strong pickup. So really, really welcome. And seeing those improved underlying cash balances also means that our net debt falls relative to where it was. It's still rising, but relative to where it was, it's lower. And our net interest payments get reduced as well compared to the last time we had a budget update. But so have they done enough spending cuts? I don't think so, actually. I think they could have been tougher here. You know, when we think about the fact that the economy is and has been quite strong, so it's quite a good time, actually, to put in place tough policy measures. Had they done spending cuts that lasted into the future, they would have also closed the structural budget deficit, which is the deficit when you take away all these kind of temporary measures and the uh, improvements in the economic activity. I think in a, in, a, in a perfect fiscal world, if you want to call it that, then we certainly could have seen um, more cuts to expenditure on an ongoing basis and also probably more revenue raising as well. Uh, in, a, in a sense, this, this, is, this goes against the government's first budgets, traditionally, always are, are really tough when governments come in and they do spending cuts and everything like that. This actually didn't do that. Yeah, that's a really good point, Leon. Um, it's not a tough budget. I think, as some of the media have been reporting, it's it's a budget which uh, keeps everyone happy. 
um, you know, it certainly gives a lot to the household sector, particularly low income earners, and that's very warranted at the moment with the cost of living so high. But it also, it, you know, it doesn't take away a lot either. You've had very few revenue increases. So increase in tobacco tax, the increase in the petroleum resource rent tax take, but even that not particularly high and a bit of sort of efficiency on the tax side, trying to pull in a bit more revenue. I think the government is also trying to get more value from money out of its existing expenditure. And that's what all the reviews that we've got going on at the moment are about. So the NDIS review, Medicare, even, even defence, uh, and of course the migration programme too. So the government's really trying hard to to work its dollar a bit harder. So does this uh, actually potentially, does it contribute to inflation? Look, at the margin, I think it does, because what the government has done is it's put more into the economy in the coming 14 months than it's taking out. And this kind of short-term period that we're in now is really the, the crunch stone for inflation because clearly we have an inflation problem. We still have inflation at running at 7% on a headline basis over the year, which is well and truly, as you know, above the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target band. It's coming down and it's projected to continue to come down and that's very welcome, but it's still very high. And in my view, they shouldn't be adding $1 into that economy, you know, let alone sort of 13, 14 billion. Okay. And of course, if they had uh, had deeper cuts of spending and braver revenue raising, that would have enabled the government to pay off debt faster. It would, yeah. That's, of course, the, the very uh, important benefit. And that uh, has all sorts of good implications down the track. It, it, it means that we're in a better position to deal with global economic emergencies like we've had recently with the, both the GFC and the pandemic. It would allow us to uh, ensure that we are, we've got a bit of buffer there to pay for the things that we really want to, including, of course, the ambition to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And also it wouldn't burden our kids with our debt. You know, we would, uh, we would let them get on with their own business down the track and, and leave them with a clean slate. All of this shows how powerfully inflation has raised the amount of money you're getting in. Yes, yes. So the uh, inflation numbers have certainly lifted the underlying cash balance results. It's, uh, you know, you, you sort of get in a stronger economy, you get stronger wages growth. People are even paying more GST because the price of goods and services is higher. So while that goes to the states, it certainly does help the bottom line. And like all people with debt... Uh, the government's no different. Inflation actually is beneficial. It actually affects, it, it lowers your debt burden. What other revenue raising measures could the government have introduced? So essentially, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of concessions in the tax system and really rather than necessarily putting new taxes on, perhaps it could have taken away some of those concessions. You know, that's, I guess, one way to think about the problem. You know, we know, for example, there's a lot of concessions on superannuation and that might be an obvious place to start. But even that small change that they made or will make down the track, but was in the budget, which is to increase the superannuation tax on earnings for those with balances over $3 billion from 15 to 30%, was obviously met with a lot of uproar and it just shows how difficult it is for the government to actually pull in more revenue. We sort of have this mentality that no one can lose and I don't think that that's a very healthy place to be from a fiscal point of view. This is, this is very interesting because in view of the structural deficits moving forward, this actually raises a question of what happens to stage-free tax cuts? Yes. I suspect the government's leaving the way open because... Uh, you know, the tax cuts don't come in until sometime down the track. 
Yes, it does. Um, obviously, nothing on that last night, which I didn't expect. But the and, and it look, it's in the budget. It's legislated. We would actually have to rewind something that was already done. There's good and bad here. It's not a simple, uh, is it good or is it bad answer, I think. If you pull back on those tax cuts and made them less generous, then you definitely get to a point where um, the budget deficit closes faster. And it's quite a lot of money. You know, these tax cuts are worth to 50-ish billion over, over the uh, 10 years. So it's a big it's a big sum of money. If you, if you started to uh, pull back on those, then clearly you get to uh, surplus faster and you maintain that surplus as well um, over the uh, forward estimates, all other things remaining equal. But we already do tax personal income very highly in this country. You know, we don't compare particularly well to other countries. And that matters because it can't have implications for people's incentive to work. Because clearly, if you're facing um, a particularly high tax, marginal tax rate, by working, say, a fifth day compared to four, then they might not work that fifth day. And, and we want people to be working as much as possible because, you know, clearly that's, uh, you know, a, a, an underpinning of a strong economy. So there are both positives and negatives to doing that. Certainly it helps fiscal balance, but it may have other unintended economic consequences. But the reality is the tax cuts don't come in for some time. That's right. They've still got another year. So um, if they wanted to in next year's budget, they could make some changes there. And, you know, there's, it's quite possible that they will. Um, you know, they could, for example, remove one of the, the, they could reverse the removal of one of the tax brackets. That would make a big difference, and particularly to those at the high income earn, earning end which is, I guess, why this these particular set of tax cuts have, um, you know, raised the ire of many. Politically, they might cop it that badly from the broader public. They might not, but my my sense is that no one's really particularly in the mood for losing any dollars <laughs> at the moment, uh, whether they're high income earners or low income earners. So I, I, I suspect it wouldn't be easy for them, put it that way. Right, okay. So all up, you know, we could have had better revenue measures and uh, tougher spending. Yeah. I think just a, just a, a sort of a tougher approach would have been would have been good to see because, as I say, the economy is at a pretty good point. They're not so close to an election that it's going to be terribly difficult to kind of take it to an electorate that's just about to vote. And of course, there is that ongoing need, as there has been for some time, to close that structural deficit, which we absolutely have to do uh, eventually. And of course, we're heading into an economic slowdown. Well, that's right. And, um, you know, it gets harder and harder as you go into that slowdown and people become more and more dependent on the government. And I'll also just add that governments collectively, both state and commonwealth across the country at the moment, are contributing a lot to the economy, much more than normal and more than prior to COVID. And as we know, that's not ideal when you've got an inflation problem. Actually, what you want to do is take aggregate demand out of the economy. And that's certainly not what we're seeing when we put the states and the federal government together. So not blaming the feds for this, um, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly collectively, I think governments could be doing a bit better here. Well, Sherelle, thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Very much for your analysis. Pleasure. Thank you, Leon. What's happening in the news? Well, Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett said executives in charge of failed banks should be held accountable for mistakes that in some cases were hiding in plain sight. Buffett also called out regulation overseeing the banking sector as riddled with skewed incentives as well as poor messaging by regulators, politicians and the press to the American public about the upheaval. The turmoil began with the liquidation of a small crypto-friendly lender in early March before it spread to engulf three other regional banks Buffett also pointed to First Republic Bank, which J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. just rescued. First Republic's filings show the lender was offering jumbo, non-government-backed mortgages at fixed rates, and in some cases for 10 years. A crazy proposition, Buffett said. It was doing in plain sight, and the world ignored it till it blew up, Buffett said. Much of the issue stemmed from piles of securities held by the banks that had lost value as interest rates rose. That poured spotlight on accounting classifications for recording value of the securities. And weight loss brand Jenny Craig has filed for bankruptcy and has begun liquidating its operations in the US after efforts to ease a cash crunch fell short. Jenny C Holdings LLC and affiliates filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy on Friday in Delaware, court papers show. The move means Jenny Craig will cease operating and see its assets sold off in pieces. Jenny Craig acknowledged the wind-down on its website. Customers' auto-delivered subscriptions have been cancelled, while coaching sessions and merchandise sales have ceased, the company said. Since founder Jenny Craig opened the company's first brick-and-mortar location in 1983, diet fads have changed dramatically. Weight loss drugs, at-home exercise machines and health food stores have reshaped the industry landscape. And the Albanese government has unveiled a $15 billion package of cost-of-living relief, welfare increases bulk billing incentives and energy bill discounts in a budget it says is not inflationary but paves the way for more tax hikes and spending restraint. Handing down his second budget, Treasurer Jim Chalmers warned there would be more difficult decisions as he confirmed tax hikes to help fund a cost-of-living package which includes $9.5 billion in welfare increases, $3.5 billion in Medicare incentives to lift the rate of bulk billing and $3 billion in one-off energy bill discounts. The welfare increases, which involved a $4.9 billion boost to the dole, $2.4 billion for a 15% increase to rent assistance, and $1.9 billion for single parents, would have a negligible impact on inflation because they spread over four years in a $2 trillion economy. Pointing to a $4.2 billion surplus this financial year, Chalmers claimed his economic plan would deliver a stronger economy and a fairer society, even though economic growth is forecast to slow to just 1.5% next financial year. The brief surplus will be followed by deficits of $13.9 billion next year and $35.1 billion in the subsequent year, sparking debate about whether tax policy decisions on the stage through tax cuts will be needed to end more than 15 years of structural deficits. 
And Australia is heading for the most benign of soft landings, with Treasury predicting a robust labour market, rising wages and continuing business investment, although it concedes that persistent inflation could cast a shadow over its forecasts. Treasury expects real or inflation-adjusted gross domestic product, or GDP, growth will ease from 3.25% this financial year to 1.5% next year before properly rebounding to 2.25% in the 2024-25 financial year. Consumer spending growth is expected to rise by a modest 1.5% in 2023-24 financial year, down from the very strong clip of 5.75% this financial year, as higher interest rates squeeze household budgets. Inflation is also forecast to subside from its peak of 7.8% in the final three months of 2022 and to return to the Reserve Bank's target range of between 2 and 3% in 2024-25. Significantly, Treasury expects that price pressures will ease despite a buoyant labour market which is driving faster wage rises. The unemployment rate is expected to remain at a near 50-year low of 3.5% in the June quarter of this year, before edging up to 4.25% by the June quarter of 2024 and 4.5% the following year. And the Albanese government is expected to bank a further $22 billion in revenue from record iron ore and coal prices in future budgets, after Treasury was forced to update its price assumptions for key commodities. Soaring iron ore and coal exports have helped deliver a strong trade surplus this financial year, and higher-than-expected commodity prices also helped deliver a $4 billion budget surplus this financial year, the first surplus in 15 years. The terms of trade are expected to decline sharply in 2023-24, as iron ore and coal prices fall back to historic averages, but it will take twice as long for prices to fall as far as originally predicted by Treasury. After underestimating resource prices in the October budget, Treasury officials have been forced to change their assumptions, predicting iron ore and coal prices will take four quarters instead of two quarters to return to long-term averages. The, the move will add a further $22 billion to the budget bottom line, according to Treasury estimates. And a $2 billion program to underwrite large-scale green hydrogen projects headlines a list of new spending initiatives designed to make Australia a renewable energy superpower. Tuesday's budget included a total of $4 billion in new measures to support the nation's energy transition as global competition for transition-linked capital intensifies. The government said its Hydrogen Head Start program would provide revenue support for large-scale renewable hydrogen projects through competitive hydrogen production contracts, which would help bridge the commercial gap for early-stage projects. The government said the investment would put the country on course for up to a gigawatt of electrolyzer capacity by 2030 through two to three flagship projects. However, it is not clear how the competitive production contracts used to distribute the $2 billion in funding will work, and government officials are believed to still be consulting with industry about the details of the scheme. The measures are likely to fall short of the broad-based subsidies industries have called for to support the development of a local hydrogen industry in the face of massive packages on offer in the US and other competing jurisdictions. And the taxman plays to raise an extra $3.8 billion in GST by extending a compliance crackdown on businesses as part of the government's efforts to lift tax receipts and repair its bottom line. Multinationals also face a new minimum tax rate, while, comp- while gas companies will be taxed an extra $2.4 billion over five years under changes to the petroleum resource rent tax that were announced in the lead-up to the budget. The budget showed the government expects to raise substantial extra revenue from the business world over the next four years, though this is mainly because of upgrades to its economic outlook and high commodity price assumptions. Among the policy changes to raise more revenue, an extension in the GST compliance program is the biggest initiative, raising $3.8 billion over the next four years. 
the government said the program would involve giving the Australian Tax Office an extra $588 million to continue with a range of activities that promote GST compliance. Global companies are also on the taxman side, with the budget confirming Labor would introduce minimum tax rates of 15% for big multinationals. The measure, which implements an election commitment and is part of a global effort to counter tax dodging, is expected to raise $370 million over five years. Earnings on superannuation balances over $3 million will be taxed at an increased rate of 30%, up from 15% from July 1, 2025. But these revenue-raising measures were dwarfed by the big upgrades in expected company tax receipts thanks to buoyant conditions in the resources sector. Since October, the government has raised its forecast for company tax receipts in the coming financial year by $28.9 billion, and it now expects to collect an extra $52.7 billion in company tax over the five years from 2022-23. As for support measures, the budget announced a tax break allowing small firms to deduct the full cost of eligible assets, costing up to $20,000. On the revenue-raising side, the budget also includes a change to the petroleum resource rent tax paid by oil and gas companies on their offshore liquefied natural gas projects, which will bring in $2.4 billion over the next four years. The government already announced a 5% a year increase for the next three years on, t- on the tax on tobacco, which will bring in an additional $3.3 billion over four years. And the Albanese government will spend $1.9 billion giving single parents an extra $176.90 a fortnight in welfare payments, winding back a controversial welfare cut Labor helped implement when last in government. Landing in Perth after a week in Britain, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced on Monday morning that the single parenting payment would continue to be paid until the youngest child turns 14, up from the current cut-off age of eight. It reverses a controversial change that pushed single parents onto the lesser paying dole when the youngest was still in primary school. The government balked at returning the age to the original cut-off of 16. Mr Albanese argued a child was sufficiently independent at 14 for the parent to do some work. And Westpac's statutory profit rose 22% to $4 billion for the six months ended in March 31, compared to $3.28 billion in the same period a year earlier. And CBA's unaudited third quarter net profit rose 10% to $2.6 billion from the year earlier period and firmed 1% against the first half. And Chemist Warehouse is facing a test case over underpayments that could grow into a $10 million back pay bill for hundreds of its stores across the country. The Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association has taken legal action against four of the discount pharmacies' South Australian franchisees owned by co-founders Jack and Sam Ganch and group head Mario Verrocci for allegedly underpaying nine staff while working higher duties. The union argues that its claims, if upheld following an August trial, would have ramifications for 1,000 employees across 350 stores. Individual workers in the case have claimed an average $5,000 underpayment, which the union says could amount to $600,000 for South Australia and up to $10 million nationally. The SDA claims in 2017 the chemist warehouse stores directed and paid staff to obtain a certificate three in community pharmacy to form higher duties such as dispensing medication. It, le- it alleges from then the workers were forming at a level three classification, but the stores did not pay them wages in line with this classification. The franchisees have denied the allegations and say the employees' principal responsibilities did not include the higher duties. They say the workers were promoted to level two classifications. And new housing approvals fell to the lowest level in almost two and a half years in March, triggered by a surge in borrowing and construction costs that depressed new sales and projects. New dwelling approvals in the 12 months through March fell 15% to 180,893 from the year earlier period, the Australian Bureau of Statistics said on Monday. It was the weakest yearly result since October 2020, 
when approvals totaled 180,165. A sharp decline, which the industry warned will worsen the affordability and rental crisis, is crimping the pipeline for new, for new housing. This will ensure there will be an extraordinary shortage of dwellings over the next few years. Soaring costs, lower borrowing capacity and growing cost of living concerns mean purchasers are increasingly unwilling to commit to a new home. And Australia's 30 largest superannuation funds have increased their exposure to industries with high greenhouse gas emissions, despite many commitments to net zero, environmental lobby group Market Forces has claimed. In a report published on Monday, Market Forces warns the 30 biggest retirement funds in Australia increased their fossil fuel exposed investments to $34 billion in 2022. Market Forces said the exposure to new coal, gas or oil projects increased by nearly 50% in the default investment options offered by these funds in 2022. Market Forces said almost 9.3% of investments across these 30 funds were in climate-wrecking companies. Market Forces estimates total fossil fuel exposure of almost $140 billion across the Australian retirement sector. This equates to an average $6,100 invested per member account. And the Labor senator who helped expose PwC's tax leak scandal has called for a clean-out of all partners and staff actively or passively involved and said until then the firm can't be trusted by the government or corporate clients to keep confidential material secret. Deborah O'Neill, who, who chairs Parliament's Joint Committee on Corporations' Financial Services, said PwC's leadership appeared not to have grasped the seriousness of the behaviour of dozens of its employees. PwC deliberately designed a scheme of theft and deception to cost the Australian people and profit PwC. That fact is not in dispute, Senator O'Neill said on Sunday, after PwC on Friday said it would hold an independent review but, but not move for sackings or resignation. The question is... Can all those involved finally accept that truth and respond appropriately to the nature and scale of the ethical collapse of which they were a part? Everyone actively or passively involved in the scheme needs to own up to that large-scale moral and professional failure, Senator O'Neill said. Her comments come as former senior bureaucrat and now ANU honorary professor Andrew Podger said PwC should be banned from receiving contracts from Treasury or even the entire built federal government until it is reformed. This builds on calls by Green Senator Barbara Pocock for the firm to be banned from winning government work and for PwC Chief Executive Tom Seymour to step down. On Sunday, Senator Pocock added that the government should launch its own inquiry into the matter. And the Chief Executive of PwC Australia has resigned in response to a leak of confidential Treasury information on tax policy, a scandal that sparked a broader examination into the government's use of consultants. Tom Seymour, whose resignation is effective immediately, was one of dozens of partners who received emails about confidential information obtained by former PwC advisor Peter John Collins. The Tax Practitioners Board deregistered Collins last year after finding that he shared the confidential information obtained through consultation with Treasury. Seymour had repeatedly apologised for the breach and recently told the Senate inquiry into the government's use of consultants that the firm's internal processes had been improved after the breach. Tracy Kinnear, the chair of PwC Australia's Board of Partners, said the firm needed to immediately rebuild trust with the government and public. Greens had called for Seymour to resign and for PwC to be banned from all new government contracts as a result of the tax policy breach. And airfares are rising at more than twice the rate of inflation as carriers cash in on surging demand for travel that has defied broader economic headwinds. Average ticket prices on more than 600 of the world's most popular routes rose at an annual rate of 27.4% in February, the latest month for which data is available, marking the 15th consecutive month of double-digit growth, according to a Financial Times analysis of data from aviation company Syrian. By contrast, 
US inflation, a proxy for global inflation in developed economies, has grown at less than half that over the same period. The data analysed prices on popular routes flown across the world and used average one-way fares in economy, excluding taxes and fees. It found significant price rises across many routes this year, compared to pre-pandemic levels. And Treasury Wine Estates is stepping up a cost-cutting and restructuring push centred mainly on its division selling commercial wines under $10 per bottle as it braces for tougher economic times and repositions further towards the luxury segment. The company, which has a workforce of about 2,500 people, last week foreshadowed the looming restructure in internal communications and a series of meetings. The main area being targeted is a Treasury Premium Brands Division, which oversees affordable labels including Wolf Blast, Lindemann, Squealing Pig, Pepper Jack, Wind, Seppel and 19 Crimes. The $15 per bottle or less price bracket is under the most pressure across the wine industry as households cut back because of cost of living pressures and rising interest rates. There was speculation that the restructuring could result in up to 200 jobs being removed in a reshaping by 2025. The company declined to comment on specific job numbers, saying it was at an early stage and that part of the process was connected to an existing 2025 strategy. More than half of Australian IT and security executives say they would pay a cyber ransom to recover their data in the wake of a cyber attack, as the federal government weighs a total ban of cyber payments. A report from Rubric Zero Lab, dubbed The Hard Truths of Data Security, found that almost three-quarters of the 125 respondents, 72%, have previously paid a ransom to recover data or to stop a ransomware attack, while 64% said they would be likely to pay a ransom to recover their data in the wake of a cyber attack. Almost every respondent, 98%, said malicious actors had attempted to affect their data backups during a cyber attack, while organisations saw an average of 46 attempted cyber attacks in the past year. The local figures were well above the global average, where 90% had seen attackers attempt to affect backup data, and 73% reported that the attempts had had a level of success. Only 14% of Australian businesses that paid attackers for, dis- for decryption tools were able to recover all their data, the report found. The government is weighing whether to ban cyber rounds and payments. And Vitura Health, known as the Amazon of medicinal cannabis, is considering pivoting from being a marketplace to a drug manufacturer after striking a joint venture with Canadian firm Pharmala Biotech. The partnership, named Cortexa, aims to become Australia's lead supplier of psychedelics for research and therapeutic research. It will allow the company to stock MDMA or psilocybin, commonly known as ecstasy and magic mushrooms, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment-resistant depression. The venture follows the Therapeutic Goods Administration allowing the use of MDMA and psilocybin under the authorised prescriber scheme from July. Vatura Chief Executive Rodney Cox said Cortexa would be the exclusive licence holder of Farmella's IP for MDMA and psilocybin in Australia and was already in talks with contract manufacturers about producing the drugs locally. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to the CEO of Genius, the Aussie startup on a mission to tackle the world's fastest growing long-term health risk, neurodegenerative diseases. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the budget. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week.